Welcome to Our Plant Stories. If you have been listening to all the episodes, and thank you so much, it's lovely to have you along for this podcasting adventure, you will have twigged that the stories are all very different. There's a lost peony over there, a treasured fig tree over here. I'm becoming used to the joy that, though these stories have a plant at the centre of them, they will all be very different. And today's is no exception. Andrew Carter is an artist and printmaker whose works often feature nature. So I thought he was bound to have a plant story, and he does. There was a sort of branch in the tree that I thought if I could climb up into that branch, I could look down and it was here, underneath this part of the willow at that side. I climbed up or put one leg up into the tree, was clambering up and slipped with my right foot but it was the sort of boyish instinct, isn't it, of I'm in my 50s, but I still wanted to climb the tree to see what was underneath it. And there were some really beautiful chub in there, which I was trying to catch, and I wanted to see where they were as well. So anyway, the tree got me. So today we're going to be finding out more about the willow tree. Cut a piece of willow tree off and thrash it into the ground and a new tree will form, a natural process for a tree is to survive and um, the willow tree does it incredibly well. Someone told me that they love this tree because it is resilient. But before we go there, there's the story. Andrew and I went to see the tree he fell out of and you can see the piece of his artwork that shares this name on the website ourplantstories.com. We met very early on a beautiful sunny morning. Andrew in shorts, thankfully me in trousers because we walked through a lot of stinging nettles to reach our destination. Just to say, my eldest brother, Tim Carter, is an avid fisherman, and when I was about seven or eight, he bought me my first fishing rod, um, and he still keeps me in tackle every year, I think every birthday since then, and I'm now 58. He still buys me something for fishing, either a rod or a reel or a net or a box or something and he also each year buys me my fishing permit to be able to fish here um, which is the river way um, and it's a real treat because not only do I get to go fishing but I get to meet see him as well so we have the day or an evening or sometimes even a night fishing together good opportunity for, for good banter and chatting just avoiding the stinging nettles as we walk along this road as well. <laughs> and the last time I was here, there was a kingfisher we saw. And we saw a nuthatch, which is pretty uncommon, and a tree creeper. I've been down here, I've seen a snake swim across the water. This is where Tim fell in, going over this little bit. So be careful. I'm glad you told me that before I go over this little bit. He fell in. Right, okay. I really don't want to fall in this morning. That doesn't feel like a very good way to... um... Look at this above. This is what I love. This is like sort of William Morris, isn't it? Oh, yeah, so we're looking up through the tree leaves. So here, this is what I do a lot in my artwork. So, you know, looking straight ahead and up to that willow pattern. I don't know what it is. Why do I love them so much? I just think they... It seems really gentle, doesn't it? 
we're standing on a little bridge, tiny little bridge, over a tiny little stream, and it's full of, looking down, full of wonderful light patterns, which is something I try and do in my artwork, is try and work out what, what it is you're seeing, and how do you capture that in a print or in a drawing or a painting. It's also so ever-changing, isn't it? Because you've got the vegetation that's falling in. So the pattern is always changing, the picture's always changing. The pattern's always changing, um, but the place, you're right, is always changing because you come down here and, as you'll find out later on, my favourite tree doesn't exist because the last time I came I realised that there must have been a flash flood and it's, it's got swept, swept into the water. Parts of it are still there. But the river bank is forever changing. And I do think that some of the trees are actually the things that sort of hold it together. Definitely alder trees and willow trees are the ones that sort of accompany you all the time when you're fishing. And looking up at the moment, there's a, this is a whole network of willow branches. And then to the left as well. Willows, willows everywhere and a hell of a lot of stinging nettles today, as we're finding out. <laughs> <laughs> This was my tree. <laughs> I, the bank has been completely washed away. So there was a lower bit of the bank here where you could sit. And this willow tree, which has now totally fallen in, was this wonderful tree that was sort of over your head. And I used to sit for hours trying to do a bit of fishing or not trying to, I was fishing. But most of the time I spent just looking up through the branches and thinking this is amazing because there's layer upon layer upon layer of willow branches. There's the sound of birds, there's the sound of water. And it just felt when I was sitting in it, this was the first time about five years ago, I just thought nothing could be more perfect than this. I felt I was in a sort of 17th, 18th century um, idyllic engraving by the artist Thomas Buick whose paintings and drawings and prints I absolutely love. But he made a whole series of prints of anglers sort of practicing their art of fishing. But they always felt like they were in this almost installation of, of leaves and plants and trees. And that's what I felt when I was here, completely submerged in the, in the landscape. If you look above us, there's still parts of this tree, this branch above your head is actually the branch that's in my print that I made recently. And it makes, when it was, if you can imagine standing up, you can see where it's been sawn off now, it was standing up and that whole um, bough of the willow tree made this beautiful arc. It's like a window looking through. And then this one that you can see lower down was connected to it. This whole tree, all of these branches were standing up. So it was way above your head. And the thing that I always liked about sitting on the ground level, looking up, is that you get all these shapes silhouetted. And you actually, when you look at a part of it, when you're seeing the willows and the alder through the willow, the only way you can make the separation, if you scrunch your eyes up, is by the shape. There's no sort of colour change. So if I'm creating a, a, an engraving, one of the things that I, I want to try and do is, is to dip, is to show the difference through the cutting and the shape making rather than the colour. I don't know how well you can hear it on your microphone, but there's a click 
of a wren in the background. And it stopped as soon as I asked for it. So how did you feel when you came on the first, was it the first day of the fishing season that you came here and realised it had collapsed? Just sad, I suppose, because I had this idea that that was exactly where I would fish. I'd sit under this tree and it would be the first day of the season. We hadn't been fishing much for a few years because of the lockdown, so I was coming back to this spot. Now, obviously, it's been two years since I was here and I came back and it, I expected it to be a bit different, but it's a totally different place. But what I, from an art point of view, what the thing that I started sort of thinking about is that idea of how an image or a sense, sense of a place can live on in your mind. And we carry those, those places with us. I mean, there are places that I remember going to when I was sort of eight. I can remember the feeling of being there or the sense of being there. And I suppose that feeling is what I liked about being here. It felt, it reminded me of all the places that I'd come to that felt sort of magical and like you were in the, right in the, in the midst of something felt really special like you we're we're here today and you're completely surrounded by leaves <laughs> like you're in a big pillow of <laughs> of nature that there's a what is that it's a that's a great tit jumping from one branch to another what is it about willows that you particularly like because this isn't the first willow that you've made a print of worked with um, the thing that I love about the willow tree is they're everywhere and they sort of seem to be synonymous with the being on the riverbank but then also going back into the sort of history of decorative painting I suppose I've, I really like William Morris's work and there's the William Morris willow pattern I, I like that idea and William Morris was an artist who lived by the Thames both in London and at Kelmscott Manor in um, in the countryside in the Cotswolds so he would base a lot of his designs on what he saw on his travelling up and down the River Thames so I suppose that's something I've tried to do in recent years I've, I've used willows in various places that I've sort of loved and John Constable as well is a, is a painter that I did some, some pieces a few years ago about John Constable's willows in Suffolk and the idea that somebody else has been there before I really love I like the idea that somebody else's eyes might have seen what you've seen and there was something probably sounds a bit naff in a way but but I, when I was in Suffolk and I was drawing from these um, willow trees I suddenly realized that John Constable will have seen would have seen the same trees because they are that old um, but he would have they would have looked very different but if you look at a painting like the leaping horse there's a willow tree in the middle of it which is a willow tree from near Flatford Mill where he grew up. Isn't this willow tree got another significance as well isn't this the one that you um, fell out of? Oh yes <laughs> yes that was um, two years ago I came here it was my brother's birthday and we came here three of us were fishing and I was sitting underneath this tree thinking I'm in the most magical place in the world and I was aware that there was a sort of branch in the tree that I thought if I could climb up into that branch I could look down and it was here 
underneath this part of the willow at that side. I climbed up or put one leg up into the tree, was clambering up and slipped with my right foot into the stream, fell over backwards and my, my foot had got caught between in the hook of this tree and I fell over backwards and heard this horrible crunching noise and thought, oh shit, I've <laughs> broken my leg. But I hadn't. I'd just torn all the ligaments in my leg and I lay there for about 10 minutes thinking, what do I do next? Anyway, so this tree sort of hurt my leg, but, you know, it sort of... And then I managed to drive back to London the following day. I was, had crutches for a, was given crutches at King's Hospital for about two months. Anyone who's torn their ligaments will know how, how painful it is. But it was the sort of boyish instinct, isn't it, of... I'm in my 50s, but I still wanted to climb the tree to see what was underneath it. And there were some really beautiful chub in there, which I was trying to catch, and I wanted to see where they were as well. So anyway, the tree got me. What was your brother's reaction? Commiserations. And then, are you still able to carry on fishing? <laughs> because there's always that thing, you don't want to go home. We want to carry on. Anyway, we did. We fished for the rest of the day, and I think we had a few nice chub out, which were lovely. Um, and, and I got on with it, but it didn't, it was just a bit, bit sore, very sore. <laughs> so now that the tree has collapsed, how do you fish here now? She says, trying to find the bank. <laughs> you can't, it's, it's gone. But there is a place just here. Where you could get down. Actually, one thing I will say about this swim, you call it on a river, you call the place that you're fishing a swim. It's the swim, it's an area of, of river. The river's moving. And when you're fishing, you're casting into it and you cast, generally casting slightly downstream. This river's full of streamer weed and what you're looking for are gaps in the streamer weed where the fish will live under the weed and there are gravel glides and they'll come out to feed or come out to just swim. So if you're casting your bait very strategically into these gaps and holes in the weed, you're hoping that this monster barbel or chub will come out and take your bait. Um, and funnily enough, the spot that I've shown you that I absolutely love, I've never caught anything there. I like the place, but I've never actually caught a fish there. The place that we're gonna go and do a bit of fishing in a minute, I have caught fish. <laughs> But it's interesting that the place that often looks the most perfect is maybe not where the fish are holding out. To understand a little more about the willow tree and how you manage it so it doesn't do what Andrew's tree did, he and I spoke to James Furman, who's an arborist in Suffolk. It turned out they both also shared a fishing habit too. I'm always quite intrigued, um, James, is that there's, I know um, willow, there are many, many different species of willow tree, but yeah. there's, there's a tree that's described as the crack willow. Yeah. And I often wonder, is, is that associated with the fact that it does crack and split? It does, yeah. And, and it carries, yeah. it, you, they almost seem impossible things to kill in a way, because like yeah. a bit will fall off, stick into the ground That's and it. start growing almost next door to where the original tree was. So Yeah, the phoenix out of the flames where the, the, the tree has fallen over, those cells that reproduce, when they come into contact with soil, 
darkness and moisture, they'll form roots. If it comes into contact with light and, and air, it will form branches. So uh, that's pretty much what, what happens when, um, when a bit falls down. But yeah, you can literally take a piece of willow, thrash it into the ground and a new tree will form. The natural process for a tree is to survive and um, the willow tree does it incredibly well. But, but that's why they, they grow so tall as well um, and get caught out. So one of the ways of stopping the tree from being caught out is to um, take the top off and uh, you're left with a, a large butt, but, um, but no sail area on the tree. And uh, so it can't get caught out by the wind. Um, that's a process known as pollarding. Um, or if we cut it right down to the ground, it's called coppicing. But pollarding is normally the um, sort of recognised technique for, for willows, for, for maintaining willows. So do you think that what happened to Andrew's tree would just be, it wasn't <laughs> pollarded, so in a heavy winds and in, in the winter, it basically got blown over? Yeah, yeah. But um, Or washed over. Or washed <laughs> yeah. over. So that, that's where the uprooting comes from. Obviously, you know, the tree's um staying f fully intact and then you get soil erosion from around the root plate and the wind you know catches the tree and the whole thing goes over you know there's there's that scenario as well so uh, quite dramatic if you get an entire willow tree uplifted oh, by yeah. the winds yeah yeah incredible root plate to be able to see a root plate from underneath is um quite a thing to have a look at, you know. Looking at the tree, were you able to, the photograph I sent you, were you able to work out what kind of willow Andrew's willow is? Fairly sure it's Salix fragilis, which is crack willow, yeah. <laughs> which is what I thought it was. But I've, it's interesting because I've drawn from these things, sometimes on the spot, sometimes from memory. And my only real way of checking is by, you know, with some sort of mobile app. And every time you point at a different part of the tree, you're given this, Black willow, white willow, yeah. crack willow, <laughs> which is because you know, it's interesting. I suppose without a, an absolute en encyclopedia on the bank, it would be quite difficult to tell them apart. How do you tell them apart, James? How do you tell them apart if they are quite close like that? So, I mean, literally, a crack willow does what it says. You know, even with a high moisture content, it will just crack um, when you when you go to snap it. A lot of trees with high moisture content it stays intact it stays um, attached in some way do you have a can i ask you do you have a favorite time of year to be on the if you're if you're under one of these trees or with one of these trees do you have a, a best time well i do a bit of fishing as well so awesome time is it's always a lovely time um for multiple reasons because the fish have all calmed down a little bit as well and the leaves are starting to turn Although we did used to fish um, a place on the Lark, which was near um, the Lark near Mildenhall, um, which was one of my dad's favourite spots as well. And that always used to get choked up with, um, with willow leaves because there wasn't a lot of flow on it. There's something sort of synonymous with a, a willow tree and a chub yeah, or a rose. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Especially, especially if it's overhanging and you've got that debris. On the and there's something well. also extremely appealing when you're on one bank to try and cast as That's it. near as you can to yeah. the other bank. Yeah. But if you were on the other bank, you'd be trying to cast as near That's as you right. can to the <laughs> bank. It's sort of a crazy thing. The assumption is that the uh, 
the big fish is always on the other side, I guess. Have you ever climbed a tree like Andrew did, James, to be able to just get a better spec on the fish? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. When I was, <laughs> when I was younger, very much so. Very much so. Not at our age, though. It's more of a monetary thing for me now. <laughs> more for commercial gain than, than anything. And actually, with your knowledge of trees, James, would you advise someone like Andrew to actually climb a crack willow? Because just I'm guessing by the clues in the name, really. Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely I must not. admit, I didn't climb very high up. <laughs> you don't need to, do you? <laughs> So we now know about the risks of climbing crack willow and about pollarding and coppicing these trees. But as those of you who have listened to previous episodes know, I am always keen that we leave this podcast knowing how to grow the plant. Now, I don't want to make assumptions, but I'm guessing that not many of us have room for a full-grown willow tree in our garden. But there is an alternative that will give you the feeling that Andrew describes of being immersed in the tree. To find out more, I spoke to Nicola Coates of Coates English Willow Company, which has been in existence for over 200 years. It's a willow growing farm. They make beautiful willow baskets, they produce artist charcoal, and they sell living willow in the spring. You're right about the willow tree. They are. They do get absolutely huge. I mean, the weeping willows are beautiful. What we grow is very different. People had that sort of iconic image of the, the single trunk with a a crown, sort of quite a bulbous sort of top, and then all the, the spindly branches coming out from, from that crown. But the willow that we grow is not like that. If you can imagine a field full of sticks, basically, <laughs> it grows in regimented ranks. We plant them in ranks. They're very closely packed together. You know, like any plants, if you, if you force them to fight for the light, they grow quite straggly. But the willow that we grow is, is tends to be other varieties as well. Like the crack willow, I think, is the one that's used mostly for cricket bats. It's absolutely no good for uh, making baskets. So we, we're looking for varieties that are suitable for making into baskets. It's usually a very fast-growing willow. The willow that we grow is definitely more suited to making a bower or a tunnel or any other sort of living structure than crack willow would ever be. So if I wanted to grow a willow bower, which is really sounds very beautiful, I'm thinking it's a smallish structure, you could grow it in a not a huge amount of space. Because one of the things that Andrew loves about his willow tree, or loved about his willow tree, was that you were totally encased in leaves. And obviously that could either take hundreds of years or you haven't got the space. So I'm thinking a willow bower is a way to feel encased, enclosed in willow leaves in a shorter space of time and in a smaller amount of space. Yes, it would. When you were talking about that, I was sort of imagining him underneath a, a weeping willow tree, you know, when the branches come right down to the ground and it's like a sort of a secret cave and you've hidden yourself in there. And yeah, definitely a bower, if you if you make that, or a dome or a tunnel or something, you can, within a, a year, 18 months, you could create the same sort of feeling of being enclosed and little glimpses of the, the sky through the leaves, and the, which is, it is very special. Makes you feel, I think that's one of the reasons that they were living bowers, quite popular with schools and things, because they could create a, a nice little safe space for children where they could be quiet and and sort of away from the rest of the 
small field or whatever. It is something that is quite quite easy to do. Okay, so give us some instructions. First of all, obviously, pick the right place, the right spot for it. If you've got a wet patch in your garden, then that's probably a good place. If you've got a, an area that's particularly dry, then you definitely need to be prepared to keep it well watered. That is a real key, especially in the first year or so when it's getting established. You also need to consider when it grows, how you're going to maintain it and um, make sure that you're happy with it to have quite maybe quite deep roots. People are often concerned about drains and um, things like that. So be really careful where you put it. And then actually creating it. That's the thing I like about these these living structures is there's no set pattern. There are lots of instructions, but basically, if you're successful in making it grow, if you've made a mistake, you can correct it as it's growing, which is, is really nice. So our basic instruction sort of set for a, a kit would tell you to mark out a circle to whatever diameter you want, probably around about six feet across or maybe even larger. And then you have a, a tool, a metal sort of just metal bar or something, which you push into the ground to make a, a hole for planting. Perhaps put a little bit of compost down in the hole. Then the important thing is to put the rod into the hole without removing the bark. If you if you don't prepare well and you push the the rod into the ground and then you sort of you push the bark away from the main wood of the rod that will kill it instantly. So you need to be really careful with that. So that's why you prepare making a hole, first of all, and then just heal it in. You need to put it in probably about 10 inches to a foot down. So you would put all these rods into the ground. And it's up to you, really, then, how you how you sort of then make a crisscross or a straight square pattern. But the, the rods that have gone into the ground are the most important ones. So then you, you bring those all over into the centre and secure them, usually with cable ties or twine, something like that. And then the rods that are, have been pulled over, anything other than vertical, it will send out side shoots. So those are what are going to start giving you the bushy tops. So most people, when they've pushed them into the ground, the structural rods into the ground, they quite often then will put another one either in the same hole or in another hole close by and take that off diagonally and start to weave them between the uprights so that those rods then will start to push out side shoots because they've been taken to the diagonal sort of um, angle. They'll, they'll start to push out side shoots and that'll start to give you a little bit of growth around the sort of the midsection of, of the bower. Obviously, leave a door, or if not, you might not want the door. <laughs> Just leave some, or you might want two doors. You might want to weave in some windows. Once everything starts growing, make sure it's really well watered, especially during that first season of growing, because obviously there are no roots on the rods that have gone into the ground. So they need to establish the roots. And then once they have established a good root system, they can find their own water. You know, I mean, willow does grow extremely vigorously, but it does need a good start in life, don't we all? <laughs> so they need to, um, they need good watering in that first, certainly in the first year or so. I think the thing is not to be afraid of it. 
if something dies, if a couple of the rods die that have gone into the ground, the next year cut back some fresh rods and push them into the ground and have another go. You know, there's no hard and fast rules. So long as you remember that when in the wintertime when the plant's dormant, it's probably the best time to do any sort of major surgery to it. And also thin, spindly rods, pushing them into the ground, they're going to react much more happily if it's in springtime than they will if you do it in the middle of the winter when the ground's frozen. Sometimes I've heard people say that you should do these things in the winter time. We would never, ever do that. It's just, it's, it's almost cruel because the willow is just going to sit in cold ground and be miserable. If you do it in the springtime when the ground's warm, it's ready to grow, it wants to grow and off it'll go. How long would you think one would need to wait and grow before you were able to kind of sneak in there with a book? <laughs> um, I don't know, perhaps sort of a couple of seasons. Okay, so not too long. No, not really. If you plant them in the springtime or early spring, you know, before there are any leaves, sort of by the end of that season, there should be leaves on all those structural rods. If there isn't, it means they've, they've died, which is some, something's gone wrong. Nicola, what do you love about willow? I like its resilience. I really do. We have experienced quite deep flooding this year and we've watched one willow bed from the top of the hill where, where our sort of the farm is situated you can look out to a willow bed that's about three years old now so relatively young and those rods are seven to eight feet tall and we've watched them disappear so totally submerged and this is the time of year we should be harvesting I say it's sort of January time we should be harvesting them now and now as all the pumps are working so they're emerging again and we know that Maybe in three or four weeks' time, we'll be able to get out there and harvest them with the machinery that we, we use. And then later on in the springtime, they'll emerge again and off they'll go again. I mean, it's real. The ability to bounce back like that, it's, it's, I don't know other plants that can do it. There's trees out there that we planted um, just using pollarded rods from you know willow trees, more like the crack willow, that we've dotted around along the ditches just to because we like the trees <laughs> and they've got you know the traditional pollarded willow look they're about three four years old and they're just standing there with the rods you know the branches above the water and the water will go down and they'll come out into leaf and, and off they go again whereas the cherry trees at the bottom of the hill in the, in the woods the ones that were badly affected by the, the flooding of 2000 and 13, 14, when it was really deep. Those have all died off. The oaks have died off. You know, they, they just haven't, they can't, they're not, they're not designed to tolerate it, are they? I hope that the enthusiasm of the people in these podcasts will be contagious. I've already heard from others who've bought peonies and passion flowers as a result of previous episodes. I am loving my new mint patch. I also hope that by now you too will be seeing how these plant stories can take us on journeys. If you have a plant that you'd like me to explore, do get in touch by emailing sally at ourplantstories.com. I'll look for connections across gardens, across continents, across history. If you can share the podcast with gardening friends, remember they can listen to it via the website or rate it on your podcasting app, that would be amazing. Our Plant Stories is produced 
and presented by me, Sally Flatman. <laughs>